Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, and we'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we'll be speaking with Kevin Kosar, who's a resident scholar here at AEI, where he studies Congress, congressional oversight, the administrative state, and the U.S. Postal Service. Before joining AEI, Kevin was vice president for policy and senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Before that, he spent more than a decade working for the Congressional Research Service, where he focused on a wide range of public administration issues. His books include Congress Overwhelmed, The Decline in Congressional Capacity and Prospects for Reform, and Whiskey, A Global History. So we'll have to get to whiskey, but yes. maybe we can start out with Congress. <laughs> Congress, Postal Service, whiskey, and we're going to get through Congress. In no particular order of importance. Because we, <laughs> we want to get to that whiskey part. Yeah. <laughs> um, but before we ask you the first question or to get talking about Congress and what's wrong with Congress and how you want to fix it, I just want to clear one thing up just to be sure. You're not in any way related to the Cleveland Brown, former Cleveland Brown football player, foot quarterback, Kevin Kosar. Or is this Kevin? Is he? Well, it- in fact, Bernie Kosar, who quarterbacked the Browns during the 1980s and had some glorious seasons there, is a distant cousin. I grew up in Ohio, although our family tree is sufficiently broad and scattered that I never met Bernie, although there were occasions when he had bad games and dissatisfied fans would look his name up in the phone book and <laughs> just find the nearest Kosar and ring my home and curse at me. <laughs> well, you know, I thought that was the case because there's a similar build. I mean, you're kind of long and lean. He was kind of long and lean. You know, it seems to me that, you know, Family that's good. Resemblance. I always liked Bernie Kosar, even though I couldn't remember his first name when I started this question. <laughs> but he was kind of a cerebral, awkward quarterback who could really throw. And the poor Cleveland Browns. Oh, man. Were you a Browns fan? No. Funny enough, I was a black sheep of my large family. I became a Steelers fan at a very young age. I was about five or six, and so that was around 1975 or 76. And the Steelers, they were just a lot cooler. I mean, they had Mean Joe Green and Lynn Swan and all these guys, and they were winning. Yes, uh, they so won. I fell in with them, and I've stuck with them. Under Chuck Knoll. Well, that's good. Being a Steeler fan is a good thing for AI. Dan Daniello, our chairman, is a great Steeler fan and grew up in just outside Pittsburgh. And... Byron Wizard White was a Steeler, and he's one of my favorites in public life. He was a great friend of my dad's. Mm-hmm. And the, the Rooney family runs that organization in a very good way. So we're, we like the Steelers. And they were in those years, they were winners, no doubt about it. Okay, we've covered that. <laughs> now, Kevin, you're one of those guys that wanders around with furrowed brow and along with Yuval Levin and say, you know, what's wrong with Congress? Congress just is not fulfilling its role that was envisioned in the Constitution, and it's so sad, and we've got to change it. Am I right about that? Is that your attitude? And, and what are you thinking about when you say that Congress is, is broken? Yeah, that's generally accurate. You know, I'm a guy who believes in the Constitution, and, you know, the Constitution, when you look at it, there's Article 1, and it's a very long article, setting up Congress and giving it all legislative authority and all sorts of other responsibilities. And the idea was that these great governmental powers should be directly tethered to the people through elected officials. So there would be accountability and alignment with voter preferences to some degree. You know, we're just in a position now in the 21st century where we are so far from that view. You ask people what's wrong with Washington, D.C., they'll very frequently point to Congress when 
You ask them what's right with D.C., they may point towards the presidency, they may point towards the high court. It's very rare that they would point towards Congress and say, yeah, those guys are doing great. In fact, last time I checked, Gallup polls had congressional approval ratings somewhere you know, around 20%. You know, the institution, put it in brief characterization, is kind of a 1970s operation dealing with 21st century challenges. Well, we're going to get into this more about what exactly specifically you'd like to see Congress do differently. But I gave you a little tip earlier today, and I sent you this lovely clip on YouTube of Senator Alexander's farewell address. And he mm-hmm. gave it a couple days ago. He's retiring after you know many, many years in the United States Senate. And it's a little bit of a, you know, he recognizes that there, there are problems with it now, but he cites all this pieces of legislation that mm-hmm. they got done and they passed. And they sounded pretty big and important to me. Do you think Congress is broken in that it doesn't pass important legislation? Is that the problem? Or what, and what about these examples? What about the fact that we're going to get a, another huge response to the disaster after two previous ones in the next couple of days? Congress seems to be able to react to a problem. Why am I wrong about that? You're not wrong about it. Congress does move some legislation along, but Frequently, on the issues that are the most salient and most pressing, they really, really struggle. I mean, how many years have we been trying to get, say, an immigration bill done? There are these big national challenges. And to the observer of Congress, it seems like they spend a lot of time doing what Yuval decries, which is this kind of performative stuff. You know, members of Congress hanging out on Twitter instead of negotiating legislation. And Look at our budget process. We're living by omnibus, you know, these multi-thousand page bills that are passed at the last second, you know, before government shutdowns. Talk to legislators. Are they having fun? Do they feel like legislators? No, a lot of them feel like their job consists in being voters. You know, they don't have a lot of stake in making the law, making policy, or taking ownership for the performance of executive agencies. So the institution feels to me to be broken in many ways. But That said, I do think the public does tend to get a little bit down on them because a lot of the work that Congress does is not reported by the media. It's just not sexy. They passed a Small Business Reorganization Act bill this year. Did anybody care? No. They didn't get a whole lot of credit for that because it was low salience and it was complex. Well, they passed the biggest reform and and change to the public lands and national parks. They're very proud of that mm-hmm. out in the West. They did that. But yeah, it seems it is true. The big piece of legislation are few and far between. They do happen, but they don't either get enough attention or they're, they aren't enough. But people want, want something more. So, so what do we have to do to change it? What would be like the, is there an institutional change or a structural change or a constitutional change that you consider your favorite that would get Congress to be more like it used to be? You know, honestly, I feel that the institution as a whole just needs to be given a top-to-bottom look at how it does things. You know, unlike a private sector firm, it doesn't really have to think about how it does stuff so as to stay competitive. It can just kind of keep puttering along and doing as it does. You know, members get thrown out, new ones come in, members get thrown out, but nobody really takes care of the institution. It just kind of drifts. And there's any number of things, whether it's the legislative procedures by which bills get considered, whether it's the processes by which oversight get conducted, 
you know, a budget process, trying to move a budget resolution and then 12 budget bills and get that all done within a nine month window. I mean, they fail at that all the time. Staffing, congressional staff. I mean, I think folks would be shocked to learn that the Congress has fewer staff today than they did in the 1980s, yet we know government is so much larger. So how are they supposed to do oversight? How are they supposed to understand what executive agencies are doing? How are they going to stop delegating if basically they don't have the people power to make the policy? There's no one thing that you can do. The whole place just needs a lot of work all around, and it's going to be a multi-decade effort. So I I read recently your piece, House Must Take the First Step to Modernize How Congress Works, and it's basically a celebration of a special committee of Republicans and Democrats in the House, I think, who have been looking at modernizing Congress, and they've written a report, and I think you you say it, I think it includes something like 100 recommendations. And I was struck by how many of them were just operations and management. They weren't, you know, changing the way Congress makes decisions. It was just modernizing the computer systems and changing the schedules and becoming a more modern entity or organization. Am I right that there's a big chunk of that that this just hasn't been fixed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the select committee focused a lot of its energy on kind of low salience operational and technical fixes. And in part, that was because of their charter, you know, the resolution that created them told them to focus on a lot of that stuff. And in part, it was a political calculation. I mean, this is a, the select committee was only given a one-year lifespan. So if they got into politically fraught areas that ticked off powerful members of Congress, they could not be renewed. So, you know, as it happened, they played their cards right and they got renewed a second year and they've come back and they're asking to be renewed a third year. They did go a little bit big when they put recommendations out for budget reform. And one of the things they said was we should move to biennial budgeting. But yeah, this congressional reform, I'm glad it's happening. But when you compare it to the reform of the 1970s and the 1940s, it sort of pales. I mean, back then you had members of Congress who kind of stood up and said, we are Congress. We're the first branch. We're being eclipsed by an imperial executive. We need to seize back power. We need to really change the way we do business in order to be part of the balance of powers between the branches. And they acted upon it. This time around, it's a much more you know, small ball effort. And it's only limited to the House of Representatives. The Senate has not gotten into the game. Well, you know, as a former executive branch employee in the state government, the idea of a aggressive legislature on oversight or on how laws are implemented because of the legislature's political aspects and partisan aspects, especially if the party in power is of a different party than the party of the executive branch, that actually worries me a little bit. Why are you so relaxed about a sort of nosy congressman trying to get into the implementation of an executive branch agency? Well, you know, I'm a believer that there's, there's good oversight and there's bad oversight. You know, do we want to go back to the day when powerful chairmen could call up an agency and say, look, you know, we're going to nix your budget this time around if you don't take these five, you know, useless friends of mine and give them high paying jobs. You know, that sort of stuff used to happen. Let's no, let's not go back to those old days. You know, I've been very disturbed by the sort of oversight that was frequently happening on Capitol Hill these days. Yesterday's Senate Homeland Security review on election irregularities was an example of that sort of just pure politics, no fact finding, no good will come of it type oversight. 
So I think fixing the oversight is absolutely, absolutely key to that. You know, if you're going to have a stronger Congress, you also have to have a Congress that's not going to be abusive in its powers, which we've had. We've had part of the pushback that the right did in the late 80s against Congress was precisely because, you know, you had a Democratic majority who got quite arrogant and who were getting too deeply involved in executive branch operations. We're making a hash of it. So we had Senator McConnell not on banter. That would have been really fun. (laughs) But we had him for an event for our community last week, and he did a great interview with me. And we talked about presidential appointments. And he made it clear that he was going to treat the president-elect Biden's nominees much better than even the Democrats in the minority in the Senate treated Trump appointees. Is that a good thing? Do you like the way? What's your take on the way in which the Senate fulfills its advice and consent duties? Yeah, I think it's good to give the benefit of the doubt to a president's appointees. I don't like the majority taking the attitude of, we're just going to obstruct every single one of them just because we can't, because we want to make you a one-term president or something like that. That just seems short-term reckless. And that said, you can't be a doormat for a president. I mean, there have been, I won't say any names, but there have been a couple of Biden purported nominees who I thought, no way, they should not be in charge of an important agency of the U.S. government because they are just political hacks. And the Senate should stand up to them. And I imagine it will. Now, on big things like the filibuster or even the the nature of the Senate versus the House and the way senators are selected, do you have any qualms with them? Would you want to reform either of those? The way that senators are are chosen, yeah, I don't think we'll go back to the days when they're picked by state legislatures. I think we've seen state legislators can be intensely partisan. And I don't think that Oh, I was meaning that people would people. give up the, the New Jersey compromise, <laughs> that the big states have, you know, only two senators and rural states. I think it's the New Jersey compromise. I'm right about that. What about that? Do you want you don't want to change that, do you? No. OK, there you go. No, <laughs> Reassuring. <laughs> but there are people that do, Kevin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, well I'm sure we've got folks who would be very happy to go with. Uh, I'm being told it's called the Connecticut compromise. Is that what you're telling me? OK. Connecticut. Phoebe Close. You're in the right region. <laughs> I'm going to double check that. And the filibuster? I'm torn over the filibuster. You know, on the one hand, do we just want to turn the Senate into pure naked majoritarianism? That doesn't sound appealing to me. On the other hand, the abuse of it. I mean, senators like to say, oh, it's a wonderful vehicle for creating compromise and for making better legislation, et cetera, et cetera. I haven't seen a whole lot of empirical proof of that. I need to look harder. Maybe I'll find more of it. But there's a, you know, there's an element of Congress's dysfunction that is just simply a matter of behavior. You know, we know that, you know, the use of the filibuster has, you know, the need to file for cloture has just skyrocketed in the last 40 years. Nobody made that happen except the senators who chose to behave that way. And I kind of wonder when they're going to get to the point where they realize that this is to some degree a short-term exercise in mutual assured destruction. (laughs) <laughs> What's the point in winning the chamber? You know, McConnell got judges, bless his heart for that. But like legislatively, why win the chamber if you're just going to get jammed by the other side and time's going to be chewed up and you can't actually do a whole lot of legislation? Yeah. OK, last question on Congress, which is so we've been talking about process and the way things are done. If the Kevin Kozar reforms were put in place, 
whose side would win in terms of advancing their objective. So would government become bigger and more costly, more redistribution, more in line with what the Democrats would want, or would it become smaller and more lean and limited government, more in line of what classical, you know, what you would spoke conservatives would be? I mean, whose partisan side wins in a major reform of Congress the way you see it? That's a good question. It's a tough one, because I've honestly not really thought about it in those terms. I mean, my own preference would be that if you did go to oversight, we could call out some of the programs that were not working. We could also do things like tackle the entitlement problem, which these things are able to be ameliorated, if not entirely solved. But of course, if you have a Congress that is doing more, there's also the prospect that the doing aggregates to the size of the federal government. It's a trade-off, and I don't see it going one way or another. What I think we would see, perhaps, is a little bit less of government authority being wielded by the executive branch simply because it can, because if you had Congress actively involved in it, you know, at least there'd be two contending powers there. Okay. Now let's turn to the Postal Service. And, and mm-hmm. Phoebe gets to ask questions too, but she, she waits. So she's, <laughs> she thinks it's okay, but I, I tell her, don't wait. Just I'll, jump, I'll in. jump on the Postal Service one. So, I mean, kind of big picture to start out, you know, after the unprecedented levels of mail-in ballots this year, you know, thinking ahead to that becoming more normal, you know, maybe a preferred method that many people use to vote. How would you kind of score how, how the Postal Service did? How did, the, how did that system hold up in this election? Well, by the kind of lowish, lowest threshold metric, we didn't have any congressional or presidential elections that were decided because the Postal Service failed to deliver ballots on time. That's setting the bar low, but that's important. And in terms of the speed at which ballots were moved through the system, you know, the evidence I have seen indicates that for the most part, Postal Service performed pretty darn well. You know, I think the Postmaster General was certainly highly incentivized to ensure that that happened. And they, they stepped up. They cut deals with the postal workers and they allowed extra overtime and they did any number of things to ensure that ballots were hustled along. What they didn't do well was communicate about what they were doing. You can't go to the Postal Service's website and see any sort of performance metrics about how fast election mail is moving. It's something I've called for them to do in which they're fully capable of doing, but they, they haven't done it. Instead, the only data we get comes from federal court filings where the Postal Service is basically being dragged into court and forced to submit data about their on-time performance. And that's, that's crazy. It's a public agency. It's got to tell the people what they're doing. And if they had communicated with the public and shown how well they were doing, and said, hey, we're falling short here, but here's what we're going to do to fix it, you wouldn't have had the hysteria that we had around the Postal Service and, you know, whether the election was going to be stolen or ruined by them. Yeah. In, in retrospect, all that hysteria, I mean, I think it was it peaked over the summer, right, with all the pictures of like the mailboxes being like pulled away and all that. You know, in retrospect, mm-hmm. was that just kind of, you know, a mountain out of a molehill? Like what was really going on now that we've all calmed down? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was an absolute mountain out of a molehill, and it may have been smaller than a molehill. The Postal Service, there are a few factors involved that created that bad craziness. Number one, it's an election year, and of course, the stakes are high. Number two, the Postal Service is terrible at public communication. You know, they've been taking blue mailboxes out of service forever. 
thousands each year. If they're not being used, the efficient thing to do is to remove them from the system, not to keep them out there and stop by them every day. It's a waste of time and money. You know, same thing goes with the sorting machines. They take two sorting machines out. They put a new one in that can do the work of two machines. You know, this is normal logistics network adjustments and upgrades. But the Postal Service doesn't communicate about that stuff to the public. And so there's that vacuum out there. And then you have, and this is a media issue, I've been doing Postal 17 years. There are very few media who cover the Postal Service. So when allegations about the Postal Service being corrupted started to fly, you had all these cub reporters and rookies who didn't know about the topic flowing into there getting information and getting things wrong and writing sensationalistic stories, which just mm-hmm. stoked the panic and further confused people. It was a bad thing, to put it mildly. Well, you were a force for reason in that yeah. debate. I mean, you definitely contributed to the discussion in a very positive way. It seems to me one statistic that I think I remember from something you wrote concerned the surge in activity in postal service demand around Christmas, which we're at now, compared to mm-hmm. around Election Day. And do you remember those numbers and tell our listeners what they are? You do. Oh, yeah. One thing I mentioned was that the total number of ballots and ballot materials that might be flowing through the U.S. mails could be somewhere around, you know, 100 million, 150 million mail pieces. Number one, the Postal Service every week moves 4.8 billion mail pieces. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. And then over the holiday season, the number of, you know, Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and other cards that get sent back and forth from people. That goes, that goes into the billion. Yeah. And it's never a problem. The Postal Service handles it. And then, Kevin, just in your own work, do you stop there at the Postal Service when it comes to elections? Or did you wade into the issue concerning signatures and fraud? Or how, how do you decide what, what you're an expert on and, and what's your view of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the postal work tied into the election stuff. In my previous two positions, I certainly was reading lots about elections, but it wasn't, you know, my job to weigh in on elections proper. And there's lots of interesting things going on out there. There's the question of fraud, but there's also the discussion of various reforms, things like ranked choice voting, for example. It's an intellectually understudied area on the political right. And it's something that, you know, I and Yuval are going to work further on because it's very important. We need to have people who have We need the public to have faith in the election system, to understand the election system. We need to ensure it's secure, whether it be from hacking or just the perception of corruption. It's absolutely critical. It's what makes a representative democracy a representative democracy, the the validity of the vote. And there are a lot of moving parts. I mean, depending on how you you structure what's allowed and what's not allowed. And they're different in every state. But it it is a more complicated question than just the mail. Where is the mail going to get there on time? Yeah. I wrote a piece for the dispatch earlier this year on a glitch in our system that was really alarmed me, wherein you imagine you have a, an election that's very, very close and the Electoral College is not yet met. Now, imagine that one of the candidates for president becomes disabled to a stroke or something or dies. What happens? The answer is there's no statutory guidance. And this has been a problem that's just been sitting there. You know, it was first identified in the 1930s as an issue and Congress hasn't addressed it. <laughs> and it could tear apart the Republic, you know, if that circumstance came up. That's the sort of stuff I want to dig my teeth into because it's stuff that's fixable and it's important mm-hmm. to fix. That's right. 
Okay, now we get to turn to the fun part, not that the previous work isn't fun and interesting and compelling, but you have a third interest after Congress and the Postal Service. You sort of take a a little bit of a interesting turn and you have a fascination with moonshine and whiskey. First of all, how did that come about? I'm a little worried about the answer here, but I'll (laughs) go for that. And Tell us a little bit about your work in, in that area. You did an event, I think, yeah. on, on whiskey earlier at AEI, which was very popular. <laughs> People are so desirous of social interaction during the COVID period. They'll, they'll zoom in on a seminar on whiskey. But tell us where you're coming from there. Sure, sure. Well, the backstory is, you know, I grew up in Ohio. And at the time that I was growing up and learning about drinks, pretty much everybody drank cheap, thin yellow beer that came in cans. Our idea of, you know, an exotic product was, you know, Michelob, which had that curvaceous bottle and was supposed to be more sophisticated and refined, or perhaps a import like Beck or Heineken. And, you know, after I got done with my undergraduate studies, I went off to New York City. And that was like being turned loose in an alcohol buffet. It was astonishing to walk into you know, corner bodega and see Belgian lambics being sold. You know, I didn't know. What are you talking about? I'm from Brooklyn, Schaefer City, Schaefer, Rheingold, the old. (laughs) What are you talking about? Yeah, the classics. But man, I got to New York City in 93 and the, you know, I was at NYU and it was just astonishing. Australian ports. And this was pre-internet, so I couldn't figure out what was in these bottles. So I had to go to the library. I was studying political science and that was interesting and all, but it was real fun to research alcohol. And, you know, studying alcohol and alcohol history has just been a, a side habit of mine. Started a website on it back in 1998 that's still out there called alcoholreviews.com and, you know, written for Oxford Encyclopedia on American Food and Drink and, you know, did the whiskey book and did the moonshine book. So are you a taster? Are you a, a sampler? of? And so can you tell us what's your favorite, you know, let's say it's a cold December day. <laughs> You're not going to have a beer and the fire's roaring and you've come in from chopping wood or doing something and you're cold. You want to take the cold out of your system. What do you recommend? Oh, yeah. I mean, my first inclination would be to go towards a good whiskey or go towards a fortified wine, like a port. Last night, I actually shipped a sample that had been sent to me by a distiller and it was a whiskey that had been aged in wine casks. So it had that rich whiskey flavor, but also had this red wine fruitiness to it. That was wonderful. Huh. Ports, you know. Phoebe, I once came home from college visiting a friend of mine and her family, and they're kind of a nice group and (laughs) a little fancy maybe for me. And after dinner, the the father brought out some Stelzen. Is that it? Is that the cheese? And port. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is pretty nice. Made it. Made it. That was the last time I ever had Stelzen and Port. Uh, Well, so I've got a little trivia for Phoebe. We're going to give Phoebe a chance first. We'd like to do trivia on this broadcast, and it is given the topic of moonshine and alcohol. What is the greatest song about moonshine in the American songbook? And that's a hint that I said it that way. Hmm. I didn't think Phoebe would get this. <laughs> Not, most of the songs I listen to actually aren't about moonshine, shockingly. They are about moonshine. Are not. Are not. <laughs> but maybe Kevin knows. Kevin, given that moonshine is one of your sub-specialties, right. you, you, of course, know what I'm referring to, don't you? When you asked the question, I actually just, my mind floated to my favorite song. 
which is Gene Shepard's Franklin County Moonshine, which came out in the 60s, which is just so rich with history and beautifully sung. But what did you have in mind? Well, I'm going to write that down and find out what that is. Gene Shepard's Franklin County Moonshine. No, the greatest song about moonshine is Irving Berlin's Moonshine Lullaby. And to our listeners, if you want to know what that is, you just have to Google Irving Berlin, Moonshine (laughs) Lullaby, and you'll get Ethel Merman, Ethel Merman, the great vocalist and Broadway star, singing that great song from Annie Get Your Gun, which is one of the great Broadway musicals. Mm. All of this is completely foreign. This didn't seem like a fair question for me. (laughs) (laughs) You know the song, Kevin? I do. All right. It was one of the ones I had to go through when I was doing the Moonshine book. Jeez. Ten years ago now? Well, there's a line in there that's very AEI because it's, it's a little libertarian. Mm. It's about moonshine. Moonshine's yeah. a little yeah. outside of the law. It's and true. So she sings about Papa's still is not quite within the law. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Really that's funny. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I recommend that. I've got a great feel for Irving Berlin. You know, one of the great biographies of anybody is Irving Berlin's daughter's a Daughter's Memoir by Mary Ellen Barrett. It's one of my favorite books. Irving Berlin had a tremendous career and contribution to American life. And Annie Get Your Gun is one of the great Broadway musicals. So I just, I had to bring that you to go. you all. It's one of my <laughs> obsessions, and I'm very glad I could share that with you guys. <laughs> but we're going to look up, what was it? Franklin County Moonshine by Gene? Yeah, G-J-E-A-N. Listen to that with some whiskey by the fire this winter. (laughs) So, okay, let's just finish with one last sort of reform, Kevin. If you had, if you could do one thing to change the way Congress makes legislation, what exactly would it be? What do you want to see Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi agree to do so that they become better fulfill their responsibilities as the the Article One branch in the United States Constitution? Commit to and stick to regular order in legislating, processing nominations, and conducting oversight. You know, good process can help produce good results. What we've seen over the last 20 years has been a discarding of settled processes and just kind of an ad hocery that's come up as far as getting stuff done. And the results just aren't, aren't as good as they could be. So is it a violation of regular order to Limit amendments on the Senate floor. Is that what you're talking about? That there ought to be a better or what violates regular order? Oh, what violates regular order? Oh, boy. Well, in the case of legislation hitting the floor, not having it go through committee first, committee of jurisdiction, that's a violation of regular order. When it comes to budgeting, not having a budget resolution, rolling bills together into giant omnibuses and putting them on the floor at the last minute, creating the threat of a a shutdown if people don't vote yes. That's a violation of regular order. I think the the approach for conducting hearings, when you do oversight right, it requires the majority and the minority to work together and to select good witnesses, not just those who will make outrageous claims that get captured on camera. And then afterwards, to work together to come up and write a committee print where you say, here's the things we agree on. Here are the facts that we are, you know, both in belief are facts. That's regular order. That doesn't happen much anymore. So is one of the violations of regular order is the extent to which the majority leader and the speaker are so powerful. There's mm-hmm. no powerful committee chairman anymore. That they, they run everything from their respective offices. 
Is that a problem? Oh, it is. It is. You know, it just it removes the skin in the game that people have. You know, one of the great frustrations that I came across in the 11 years I was at the Congressional Research Service was, the, you know, how many members and staff just, they, they weren't actively legislating because it was like, yeah, you know, I can't do much. <laughs> that shouldn't be happening. But that's where we're at. You know, committee staff has declined. Leadership staff has increased. And that's where the power is these days. Okay. This has been great. Thank you very much, Kevin. Pleasure to have you. Phoebe, next time I'll give you an easier question. <laughs> Maybe more in my age range. <laughs> okay. Annie gets your gun should be in everybody's age okay. range. <laughs> All right. I'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.